Romans chapter 3, verse 1, the greater story of the book of Romans, the overarching theme of the book of Romans is God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace. Grace is one of those words that's very hard to define, but you know it when you've experienced it. It simply means a gift. And so we're seeing God's great gift of salvation to mankind, to me and to you specifically. So God's amazing grace, despite my terrible sin, God has has expressed his love for me through his amazing grace. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. And how that grace affects us and what that grace means is expressed through the book of Romans, the 16 chapters, through looking at it by four different structures or four different buildings. And I won't go over all four buildings this morning, but we're still in the first building. Being in the first building will take us all the way from chapter one, all the way through the end of chapter five. Those that have been around, can you remember what building we're in? We're in the courthouse of God. So in the courthouse, person after person is kind of coming and trying to justify themselves, and Paul is shooting them down one at a time. Everyone who might think that somehow they're escaping the wrath of God, Paul is lining them up and shooting them down. And today, because we're still in the courthouse, and we will be for a while, remember, Paul is aiming somewhere. He's going somewhere with his argument. And we'll get there today. We'll finally kind of conclude this part of the argument so that Paul can bring the next part of the good news. So you can't have good news without what, church? Got to have some bad news. So today, we'll have more bad news. In fact, Paul will be putting the final nail in the coffin of any self-righteousness or any claims to be good people. So hang with me. You'll be feeling terrible about yourself for a while. And that's good. That's Paul's purpose because uh, he wants to show you just how amazing God's grace is. And you'll never get it. You'll never see the amazing grace of God until you see just how desperately lost and twisted you had become because of sin. Are we together in that church? So in the courthouse, we've talked about chapter one, the atheist, the person who rejects what knowledge of God they had. It's not that this person didn't have a knowledge of God. It's that what knowledge they had, they rejected. They chose a lie. They didn't want to think about God. They didn't want God. And even if people don't believe in God, it doesn't set them free from God's judgment in their lives. And their rejection of God leads to all kinds of awful, sinful behaviors. And uh, so then the next person comes, seeing that first person in the court, with all the rejection of God, their rebellion, and their sinfulness, the next person comes and says, well, I'm glad I'm not like that person. I know that those things are wrong. I admit, and I'm aware that those things are wrong. This would be the self-righteous person. And the self-righteous person thinks that somehow they're protected from the judgment of God because they know right from wrong. But Paul dismantles that argument because it's not just knowing right and wrong. It's just not coming to Bible study and saying, amen, to the sermon. It's actually living a whole life of perfect obedience. So even the self-righteous person has to admit that at best, they're inconsistent in their righteousness. And even though they point the finger at the other person, there's how many fingers pointing back at them? Yes, three fingers, one, two, three, pointing back at me. So the self-righteous person is dismantled. And we're talking, again, Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. Those are the two people that come together to make up the church and the world in God's eyes. There are Jews, and then there are people that are not Jews. 
And so the not Jews, the Gentiles, would be the people that are clearly worshiping idols. They're clearly rejecting God. Then the Jews are the self-righteous ones. So chapter 2 is dealing with the self-righteousness of the Jews. And we can now fold in the religious ritual person into that not escaping God's judgment category as well. Because the Jew began to say, well, what about our religious rituals? That's got to account for something. And they used their circumcision as an example. That was the sign of the covenant between them and God. And they thought that this made them immune, that just by nature of being Jews descended from Abraham and having submitted themselves to the ritual of circumcision, that they should be okay. And Paul dismantles that argument at the end of chapter two, basically saying, look, let me give you this example. Yesterday, there was a wedding here. And this young couple exchanged vows and they exchanged rings. They made a covenant with each other. The symbol of that covenant was a ring that would go around the finger, just as circumcision is a cutting around. That's what circumcision means. So then Paul says, well, wait a second. Let's use wedding as an example. This is my example. Let's say you have two people that are living in a committed marital relationship with each other. And they have demonstration of love between one another. There's kindness, there's love, but yet they've chosen not to wear wedding rings. See, for years, I didn't wear a wedding ring because I was working in a trade and I worked with hammers and nails and stuff that could tear my fingers off if something got caught into my ring. So I didn't wear a wedding ring for a while, but that didn't change the truth of the inward love for my wife in my heart, even though I didn't have the ring. So Wouldn't that be better to have people that didn't wear a ring yet showed marital love as opposed to two people that did wear wedding rings but then lacked the true inward love and devotion to each other that we expect of marriage? Which would be better? To have the rings but not the love or to have the love but not the rings? Well, we would all say, well, the rings would be better. See, the Jews said, well, we have circumcision, but what they lacked was love. It was love. So Paul said, well, your circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision. You see, if two people fall out of love, so to speak, they can take their ring off and put it aside. But a person can't get uncircumcised. Let me say that, un-uncircumcised or something like that. So even though the love is gone, they still had the symbol. And so Paul shows that just because you have the symbol, he says your circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision, just like your marriage becomes unmarriage unless you're loving each other. Are we clear on that? So religious rituals have their place only when there's love and when there's relationship with God already there. And so he dismantles the, well, I have my religious ritual. I'm a member of this church. I've been baptized. I partake in communion. All that is fine if you're saved, if you love God. But if you don't, none of those things matter. So Paul dismantles some of these things the Jews held on to. A religious person, listen carefully, Sometimes the hardest people to reach with true salvation by the grace of God are people who are religious because they think they're okay by their rituals and truly they have no need of God because they have ritual. And so Paul dismantles that. Now, that brings up a question for the Jewish people that he's talking to because the Jews are the ones that are hardest to reach. They're the most rejecting of this message because they think they're okay just by nature of their ritual. So Paul says, verse 1, chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? That would be the natural question. In fact, Paul asks nine questions in eight verses. Now, Paul is not asking the question. He's having an imaginary conversation with someone who is Jewish 
and someone who has sort of questioning Paul's teaching, questioning Paul's doctrine. You know, Paul traveled thousands of miles, spoke in dozens of synagogues, got run out of countless cities because of the things he taught about salvation by the grace of God through faith and not by works. And don't you think that during those conversations, he probably heard a certain number of arguments, but then after that, there was nothing new. You know, there's no new arguments. People still ask the same questions, right? Well, if God is so good, then why do bad things happen in the world? And you should have answers for that. Paul, having been asked the same questions, now is offering those questions, and he's offering answers that make a lot of sense. And here's my fear for the church, is we hear the questions, there's no new questions, but we never take the time to think through and reason out really good answers for why we believe what we believe. And this is, for some people, life and death situation. When that person asks that question, well, if God is good, why do bad things happen? You should have an answer for that. And if you don't have one, you should be working on a reasonable answer. Because you know what? If no one has an answer, then they go on and they they just think, well, Christianity can't answer my question. The Bible does have answers. But I think God's people should really take seriously time to, to, and thought to reason through answers for people's questions. Because when you do that, you can win a soul. And so Paul, having heard these questions, now he formulates them. The first question, so Paul, if there's no difference then between Jew and Gentile, if it's just a matter of the inward heart and not the outward ritual, then what good is it to be Jewish? Then, I mean, we thought like the Jews were God's chosen people, right? And God started the Jews with Abraham and, you know, the, the Jews wouldn't exist if it wasn't for God and working through Abraham. And then he gave them the ritual of circumcision. He gave them the Sabbath day and Passover and all that stuff. And now, Paul, it seems like you're saying that being circumcised is no big deal, even though God did it through Abraham and that's our heritage, and that being a Jew is no big deal. And that doesn't sound right to us. We believe that we're God's chosen people. We believe that the Bible says we're God's special treasure. And that's true. And that's what Paul says. Look at verse 2. He says, actually, what's the advantage? It's a great advantage. He says, much in every way. There's a huge advantage to being Jewish. Just not the advantage that they thought it would be. They thought the advantage of being a Jew was immunity from the wrath of God. But actually, the advantage of being God's chosen people was the responsibility of obedience to God's word. God's plan was to establish a nation over which he would be God, their God, and they would be his people. He would love them and be gracious to them, and they would love him back and obey him. They would love him with their whole heart, mind, soul, strength. And this was the relationship they would have. And then other nations would see that nation, other idolatrous nations, and they would say, whoa, you guys are special. Your wisdom, the way you live is amazing. Why is that? And then they would get to shine the light of God to the whole world. That was God's intent and plan for the Jewish people. Great advantage. Maybe some of you grew up in a Christian home. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? I'm like a real Christian home, not one, not a hypocritical Christian home. One where the Bible was around and mom and dad talked about God and you prayed before meals or prayed even in the morning before you left for the day. You grew up, God was part of the home. Or if you were in a single parent home. Maybe your mom or your dad just carried that torch of faith. How many of you grew up in a home that was far from Christian? 
So those of you who grew up in a Christian home, wasn't that a great advantage in your life to grow up in a Christian home? It was a great advantage. You were hearing the word of God. You had a testimony of faithfulness. You prayed. You learned how to pray. You saw those things. Dysfunctional folks, you know, from dysfunctional families, we learned abuse. You know, we learned how to argue, how to throw stuff. And so great advantage, just like the Jews, great advantage. What was the advantage? Well, Paul tells them the primary advantage was not immunity, but it was the fact that, look, it says right there, cheaply because to them were committed the oracles of God. They were given and entrusted with, not just to know and to teach, but to obey the very utterances of God. Oh, what a great privilege, right? What a great privilege they had. They had heard the voice of God on Mount Sinai. They had the commandments. They knew right from wrong. They knew righteousness. They knew morality. They knew community, how to behave, how to treat each other. What a great advantage. Ah, but there's a problem. And then the person, okay, so that's the advantage, verse 3 then. But what about this? Evidently, man and his disobedience can kind of derail the promises of God. That's what he says next, verse 3. So what if some did not believe? And believe, in other words, believe to obey. God had told them, if you obey what I tell you, then there will be blessing. But if you reject, if you fall into idolatry, if you start to do what the other nations do, then there will be cursing. He laid it out for them. Blessing for the ones who believe, cursing if you reject and don't believe. So he says, what if some did not believe? This is the question. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God ineffective, without effect? Well, how would you answer that question? If someone doesn't believe, Does that derail the plan of God? Paul says, absolutely not. It's the strongest negative he can use. There's no way. There's no way. Just because people don't believe, they have the word, they don't believe, but God is always faithful. He cannot be anything besides that. That is who he is. People can be unfaithful. People can be untrustworthy, but God is always faithful trustworthy. He will always keep his promises no matter what. And that's what Paul says. Matter of fact, he says in verse four, certainly not. He says, in fact, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, if there's ever a situation where God and man disagree, where man reads the word of God, do you know the pride that we are filled with? I mean, human pride, we don't stop to talk about this much. We talk about sins like adultery or alcohol or these kind of things, but pride is the biggie, isn't it? Pride is the one we all needed to be healed from that kept us all from God. Pride says, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to go, yeah, you know what? I don't agree with that. Huh? That makes you God. You're saying, well, God and I have a disagreement about this and I think I'm right. Are you kidding me? I mean, do you hear yourself? He says, in fact, if the whole world disobeyed God, if the whole world rejected God, the whole world wouldn't be right God would still be right. That's what he says there. Let God be true or faithful and every man a liar or unfaithful. And then he cites Psalm 51 to prove his point as an example. This is the Psalm that David wrote after he was caught after a year, year and a half of hiding the fact that he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, Uriah. He writes this Psalm and he says, God, that you, capital Y, do you see it there? That you, God, may be justified in your words 
and may overcome when you are judged. He doesn't blame God. He actually says God is absolutely right to judge. God is right to judge when he does that. I love that psalm. That's a wonderful psalm. Some people say, you know, when I see God, he's going to have to answer a few things for me. Oh, really? Is that what you think? But you hear the rebellious, the pride is unbelievable. Job tried that. Job questioned God. And what did God finally say to Job? Okay, Job, now it's my turn. Job, where were you when I hung all the stars in the sky? The deer, they don't even need your help to give birth. There's all kinds of things happening in the universe. The planets are going around. The stars are out in the sky. I mean, all this stuff happening consistently. The sun came up this morning, and you know it's not really the sun coming up. It's the rotation of the earth around the sun. But for us, we said the sun came up. Did you have anything to do with that? No, it just happens. Even if you're unfaithful, even if you can't be trusted, God is still trustworthy. He's still doing those things that he's responsible. And that's what Paul says. Look, God is always trustworthy. He'll elaborate on this if you stick around long enough. Uh, Chapters 9 through 11, he will elaborate on how God used the disobedience because some of the Jews disobeyed the word of God, right? That was the Jewish history. They rejected their God. Not all of them. Elijah would say, God, here I am. I'm left alone after the Mount Carmel experience. He says, no, no, no. There's 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to idols. Joshua and Caleb, out of the whole nation of Israel, going into the promised land, they go into spies. Joshua and Caleb are like, all right, God said it. Let's go. Let's do it. They were faithful. But the rest of the nation rejected God's word, God's promise, and died in the wilderness. And so we'll elaborate on that when we move on into chapters 9 through 11. But Paul continues the argument, verse 5. Okay, so if God is still going to do his thing, if he's still faithful, even when we're unfaithful, then maybe our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And what do you say to that, Paul? Don't you hate when people do that? They try to present you with some godly conundrum. They try to box God in a corner. You know, you know, did Adam, okay, did Adam have a belly button? Really? You've never thought of that before, huh? Did Adam have a belly button? Yeah, Steve, did he? (laughs) You'll have to ask him when you see him. If you're going to heaven, you can ask him. What was it like to be in the whale's belly? You know, how did Jonah do that? I don't know, but people try to ask these questions and box God into the corner. And so this is what Paul has experienced, and he's just sharing with us. So, okay, if when we're unrighteous, God's righteousness is even more identifiable, is even more noticeable, you know, the worse I am, the better God looks, the better God is, then maybe God's not right to punish. Think about it. That's what he says. What do we say to that? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And he says, I speak as a man. He says, recognize This is a human argument. Rational people don't make this argument. This is people trying to play fast and loose with God. I'm just, this is what people argue. Paul's not saying he believes that. He's saying this is the stupid argument I hear from people. This is the argument Judas could have made, right? Judas would say, well, you know, all through the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Savior would be betrayed, that 30 pieces of silver would be the price for betrayal and betrayed with a kiss. All this was prophesied so Judas could say, well, I should be innocent then. How is God just to judge me 
because I just did and God used what I did was already talked about in the word of God. And Paul says, that's a stupid argument. Because yes, God is sovereign, but he doesn't tempt anybody with evil. And he's not tempted by evil. So we have man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And I'm not in charge of figuring out how those things match up. Paul just says, the question is, okay, so then is God wrong to judge Judas? Because Judas's sin, his rejection of Jesus and his betrayal was actually used by God to put Christ on the cross, which is where it was prophesied he'd be all along. And it was used for his death and his death led to his resurrection and his resurrection led to my salvation. So Judas should get kudos. That's the stupid argument. And God says, actually, Judas is responsible for his actions, just as the Pharaoh is in the Old Testament. Pharaoh's hardness of his heart was used to free the Israelites, but Pharaoh was still responsible for his hardness of his heart. He said, is God unjust? No human being, look at that, no human being accuses God of being unjust. That's what Paul's saying. He says, certainly not for then how will God judge the world? If God can't judge sin, then God can't judge the world. And they knew God was going to judge the world. They just thought God was going to judge the Gentile world. Remember, they thought they had immunity, but what they really had was responsibility. So they expected a coming judgment, but they just thought it was for other people, for Gentile people. In fact, the interesting thing about this is when God judges sin... And among the Jews, he demonstrates his righteousness in that he's not partial to anybody, not even his own people when it comes to sin and justice. And so in that way, his judgment against sin, wherever he finds it, further reveals the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. But that doesn't mean they should sin on purpose. That's the next part of the argument. Verse 7 says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, then why am I still judged a sinner? Again, Judas might say that. Pharaoh might say that. And instead, here's what we should say, Paul. If you're talking about grace and not works, and you're talking about the faithfulness of God, maybe if God is able to redeem sin that way, then maybe we should say, let's do evil that good may come. And that's what they accuse Paul of saying, as we are slanderously reported, And as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Paul says there are people accusing us, slandering us, saying that we're teaching that people should do evil, that good can come. Paul shared his own testimony, I'm sure. Paul shared his own testimony of having been a depraved man, an insolent man. He says, I persecuted the church of God. I was a horrible man. And he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He highlights the grace of God. Don't we struggle? There's something in us that struggles with the grace of God. We just wrestle with that, that the worst sinner and the more sinful you are when you get saved, it just highlights the depth and the extent of the grace of God, that God can save a murderer, that God can save an adulterer, that God can save anybody. And the worse, the more twisted your life was, the more we see the grace of God. Isn't that what we, the test, when it's testimony time, don't we love to hear the juicy ones? We do. I mean, the, the more nasty you were, the more time you did, 
the more we love to hear because we go, oh, God is awesome. I mean, you were a mess. And God saved you and he's put you on the right track. And that's true. But sometimes the mess you are, you're just better at hiding it behind religion. And so my kids struggled. You know what, Dad? We were saved. We grew up in a Christian home. We were saved young. We don't have that kind of testimony. I said, it's okay. I'm glad you don't have that kind of testimony. How many of you wish maybe didn't have to experience some of the things you experienced? Even though you look back on those experiences and God's redeemed them and he's used them to make you who you are and to give you the testimony you have, it doesn't mean that you should have done those things on purpose, nor does it mean we tell someone, hey, yeah, sure, go ahead and sin all the more so that God's truth can be all the more. I mean, the worse your life looks, the better we go, hey, God's word is true. You're a mess. And Paul says, don't say that. That's called tempting God. When you want to sin and go, oh, God will forgive me. When you take grace lightly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. I heard one pastor say, God's grace is for when we slip into sin or fall into sin, not for when we jump into sin. And so Paul says, it's ridiculous for a person to say, let's just do more evil so that God can be more glorified. That's ridiculous. So now he moves on to the next part of his discussion. Okay, so what do you say to that? They would say the end justifies the means. Paul says, that's not the case. You're responsible for the means, even the Jews. He says, so what then? Are we better than they? He could be speaking on behalf of the Gentiles. Then are we the Gentiles better than the Jews? He could be saying that. Or he could be saying, well, so then what do we do with the Jews? I mean, what about us? Are we then somehow have any advantage at all? And Paul says, not at all. We have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, chapter one, that they are all under sin. Everybody is guilty. Everybody is under sin. He uses that word. It speaks of sin being a slave master. That's what it means to be under sin, literally to be under the authority of sin. He says both Jews and Greeks, they were obeying the voice of sin in their lives. That's what they were obeying. I mean, you just have to look at the unrighteous trial of Jesus and the Jews that they justified lying and all the things that they did in terms of Jesus and his conviction, all of that, so wrong according to Jewish law, but they justified it. They were obeying sin in their lives. Every person wrestles with being a slave to sin in their life. And now Paul says, look, don't just take my word for it. This is not just me watching the morning news and shaking my finger at the world. He says, I got an idea. Don't just take my word for this, that everybody is under sin, that all people all over the world, whether you're Hindu or Buddhist or Catholic or non-denominational or atheist or agnostic or Chinese or South American or wherever you are in the whole world, everybody is under sin. Is, don't take my word for it. Let's see what God's word says. So he opens up the Bible effectively and he strings some pearls together. This was a Jewish, a rabbinical method of teaching to grab a bunch of independent verses and string them along to build an argument. And oh boy, are you ready? Are your seatbelts fastened? All right, I hope they are. I hope your seatbelts are on. So he begins, as it is written, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. I'm not going to give you all the quotes. A lot of them are from the Psalms and various places in the Bible. I'm not going to give them all to you, but that's why they're in italics. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Does that include you? Well, he means none except me. That's, there's still some people holding on. No, none except me. I'm the one. I'm the only one. No, you're not the only one. Uh, look around. You're in good company. 
We are all in this together, church. And that is so unifying, isn't it? There's none that can stand above anyone else. I've heard the example used when it talks about you know, our righteousness. Because he says that there's none righteous. There's none that has lived that perfect life. You guys know what kind of swimmer I am. I've shared my personal testimony. I'm a lousy swimmer. I dredge the bottom when I swim. My legs drag behind me. I got to wear rubber duckies. You know, I, I can swim, but I'm just not that good at it. I panic in deep water. And so I'm just putting myself out there. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take everybody from church and from the community. We'll take everybody from Fluvanna County and we'll all have a road trip to Virginia Beach. Road trip to Virginia Beach. And we're going to line up on the beach there as the water's lapping up onto the sand. And we are going to start to swim, all of us. We're going to start to swim where? We're going to start to swim to England. So if we're going to compare ourselves and say, well, I'm more righteous than them. You know, they're a really bad person, but I'm a little bit better than them. So, okay, let's give you that. But England is the destination. That's righteousness. That's perfection. And I'm thousands of miles. And so I'm going to make it, you know, 100 yards. That's being generous. I'm going to make it 100 yards, even with my rubber duckies. I didn't swim growing up, but maybe some of you are swimmers. Anybody swimmers in here? Anybody swim less? And some of you are pretty good. How far could you make it? The best among us in here, swimming. How far could you make it? A mile? Probably. Yeah, someone could swim a mile. I mean, if you're doing the ultra marathons, the uh, Ironman competitions, you got to swim two miles. number of people do that. About 10 miles. Anybody think they could make it 10 miles? 20 miles? Anybody think they could swim 100 miles? So we get in and I'm dropping out first and then you're going, and then there's a guy that swims 100 miles and he's made 100 miles out. But how far is he from England? You have still fallen way short of righteousness. Do you see the point? And we laugh at that. And I want you to laugh at that because I want you to hear how silly it is when you compare your righteousness to the guy down the street or to the other person. Your righteousness is not based on comparing yourself to other people who are worse swimmers than you. I think I'm a pretty good swimmer compared to this other person over here. But our righteousness is compared to God's righteousness. And that's why Paul can say there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. God sought me. There's no such thing as seeker-friendly churches. The seeker is God. We're the hiders. Think about Adam when he sinned. What did he do? He said, oh God, where are you? I need help. No, he hid himself. And listen really carefully, church. Don't be fooled. Sometimes the most convenient and deceptive place to hide is in church, behind a religious veil of ritual. There's a lot of people in church that are there not to get close to God, but because they're hiding from God. And the rituals and the traditions and all those things are really convenient to hide from God. There's none who seeks after God. Notice the all-encompassing words. They have all together become unprofitable. I like that word. It means useless or spoiled. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 12. They've all turned aside. That's the word to deviate. We are all little deviants. So you point to you, you little deviant, and you got to, again, there's three fingers pointing back at you. You know, when I build something, I go up to Lowe's, and you got to pick through the wood piles up there. Guys will know what I'm talking about. Maybe some of the girls in here that build. I don't want to stereotype, but you go up, 
and you look through the wood pile and you're just citing these pieces of lumber because I got to build something and I want it to be straight. And it's really hard to use twisted lumber to build something straight. And so you're looking through the pile. You're like, no, that one's twisted. Whoa, that was really bad. That one's like warped out this way. That one's really bad. And you go through the whole pile like everything is twisted here. And that's what God does when he looks through the pile of humanity. He says, every one of them is twisted. They're all deviated, some less than others, but all deviated. They're all twisted. And then he says they have become unprofitable or useless. You see, every one of those rejected. Now it's twisted, rejected. It's twisted, rejected. I just want to find something I can use. And God says, I've looked around. I can't find anyone. There's none who does good continually. No, not one. And so for anybody that might object to that first part, Paul says, I have only to go to one place for the evidence of this. Let's talk about our mouth, our language. He says their throat is an open tomb. Think about that for a second. Let's go down to the cemetery and open up some of the graves there and see what kind of wafts out when you do that. Talk about bad breath. He says their throat is like an open tomb. When you take something that's, you know, like that's decaying and it's been enclosed and you open it up, some of you guys got Tupperware like that. <laughs> right? It's in the fridge. It's in the back. You haven't seen it in a while. And you, you go, oh, I haven't seen this. And Helga will say to me, hey, Steve, this, I'm going to compost this. Do you want it? No, you mean I got to crack at it before it becomes compost? No, 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 thank you. And then you hope it's been in the car a couple days. And man, that's bad because you let it vent. You see, I had to get off Facebook years ago because it was hard for me to watch God's people vent on Facebook. Yeah, now I'm making it serious. Huh? It was funny a minute ago, but now it's real because you're, well, I'm just venting. No, you're just proving that God is true and every man's a liar, that you're really not as good a person as you thought you were because you're venting and you're fulfilling the very word of God that he said, all of us have sinned, all of us. And one of the ways you prove that is when you decide to vent. When you give them a piece of your mind, keep it, you need it. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. We call it advertising or politics. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. Isn't that true of our world? I mean, we have all kinds of committees and groups and people that want to try to get together in the name of peace, and we just can't do it. There are wars. Spain, I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't watched the news lately. What's happening with Spain? They could erupt into civil war. There's North Korea. There's Syria. I mean, there's our own country. There's racism. He says, look, it's just, remember, let God be true and every man a liar. What God has said is true. We see it proved out to be true that the way of peace, they have not known. We need the Prince of Peace. You need the Prince of Peace in your home. You need the Prince of Peace in your hearts. Because where does war start? It starts right here. And then he gives the reason there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no respect of God. There's no understanding of God. There's no desire to obey God. It's just rebelliousness. You think about a, a child, if that kid is rebellious, that they'll look at you in the face and say, uh-huh, okay. But then as soon as you turn your back, they're doing what they want anyway, right? And that's how people are. We come to church, 
say, oh, ah, I'm in church. Oh, amen to the sermon. But then what happens? You go out and you just do whatever you want anyway. And that's proof that you wouldn't do that if God was right there. But he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now he closes out this part of the argument and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, speaking to the Jews. Again, the Gentiles, pretty easy to convince that they need salvation, that they need a savior. It was the Jews, the religious people that were hard to convince. It says, it says to everybody that's under the law, in order that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Gang, we just arrived. That's where Paul was going. There is one sense of guilt around the world, so there can be one salvation for everybody. I was in court with a friend a couple years back and was there to, to pray with him and just to be supportive for him. And there was another guy that was in the court there and he was defending himself from a speeding ticket. And he stood before the judge and he just began to lay out the officer that, that gave him the ticket was there. And he just began to try to justify himself Oh, here's why I did this, and here's why I did that, and I was late, and someone needed me, and I just, normally, I, I, you know, I'm okay. Normally, I keep the speed limit, and, and he finally just, after this whole justification to the judge, he finally just said, look, judge, I am not a speeder. And the judge just looked at him, took his little stamp, and just stamped his paper, and said, guilty. Congratulations, now you are a speeder. I learned so much right then, because you will say, I am not a sinner. God says, boom, the law says you're guilty. Congratulations, you're a sinner. Welcome to the team. And after that, you know what? The guy didn't say a word. He didn't say, what do you say? What do you say once you're confronted with the law and you see it, what do you say after that? There's no more justification, you're guilty. And he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified, will be considered innocent. But instead, it's by the law that we even know what sin is. The law doesn't make us right with God. It shows us how twisted we've become. 